Hello everyone, welcome to Green.io, the podcast for doers making our digital world greener, one bite at a time. I'm your host, Gail Duez, and I invite you to meet a wide range of guests working in the tech industry to help you better understand and make sense of its sustainability issues and find inspiration to positively impact our digital world. If you like the podcast, please rate it on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform to spread the word to more responsible technologists like you. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. For this episode, we took a virtual Eurostar connecting London and Paris to meet both Anne Fabry and Tom Jarrett, two great thought leaders in the sustainable design field. Actually, we spent the three last episodes talking mostly about infrastructure, hosting, cloud, and how to green them. However, everything starts with design. How we design our digital products and services in the early stage can have a lot of consequences, both good and bad, on the carbon footprint or the impact on planned obsolescence, for instance. So let's meet Anne and Tom to talk about it. Anne is a board member of Designer Ethique, Ethical Designers in English, and a freelance UX designer. After graduating from the Lyon Business School, she joined IBM for several years first as a consultant in digital transformation and then as a UX designer after earning a certificate in this field from the prestigious École des Gobelins, the top design school in Paris. She has worked in the Netherlands and in Japan. Quite a busy professional life indeed, and I did not even mention her university lecturing. Tom Jarrett has been a designer for 14 years. He started when using Flash was cool. He has worked in both big and small digital agencies. And five years ago, he found his sweet spot at Normally, a research and design studio which experiments a lot. From working a four-day working week to salaries being calculated by an algorithm and so on. And beyond experimenting, Tom is also involved in the climate action community, starting with designing its branch magazine. Welcome, Anne and Tom. Thanks a lot for joining Greenio today. Hi, Gail. Hi, yes. So, first of all, what did I forget to mention about you? What did I miss in your bio? Well, <laughs> it's hard to uh, summarize uh, one person in a few sentences. I think your bio was great. <laughs> At the moment, uh, since I'm a freelancer, I've been working on a few projects. So to explain a bit more what I do in my daily professional life is I advise companies, organizations uh, in their sustainability um, uh, regarding their web practices. And as a designer, I can uh, redesign their uh, websites or apps. So I mainly focus on projects which have a lot of meaning for me, whether it's to work for a museum, organic farmers, a startup uh, working with energy savings, the National Health Administration or the NGO Amnesty International. So it's a very diverse range of clients, which is absolutely fascinating. And so I mainly focus on all these uh, sustainability topics that we are going to mention today. Wow, that's great. And what about you, Tom? So yeah, I think your your bio is great and the summary of normally is really good. Um, also, at normally we have something where we make space and time for internal projects. And something we've kind of called an expedition where we try to explore the material properties of data. And that's really led me to having some proper time like at work and with other people to explore the area of sustainable digital design and try out experiments like tracking my own digital carbon use for weeks worth of the internet use. Um, and also where we developed Cabin, which is like a more private, greener web analytics 
Tips alternative to Google. Mm, and we'll talk about that a bit later. There is a question I love to ask my guests, which is, what is your journey in the sustainability field? How did you become interested in the sustainability of our digital sector in the first place? That's a good question. <laughs> um, if I might go first, I've always been interested in uh, sustainability, I guess, like try to recycle things from an early age. And my family was quite uh, conscious. Uh, my mom loves nature and all like she knows all the birds and plants and everything. Um, but it's still a big journey to realizing what are the big impacts, for example, taking the airplane or eating meat. And so when I joined IBM, um, Five years ago, <laughs> it was still uh, some, like high technologies was still something I was extremely interested in. And I didn't think of uh, endless growth as something impossible. And I was just really a tech uh, fanatic and thinking that technology could save us all and blockchain was the future. And nowadays, I don't think that anymore. <laughs> I became uh, more skeptical regarding high technologies because there are um, they consume a lot of energy and resources and I don't think they are so sustainable anymore. And I think the IPCC report of 2018 was a big switch for me. I started joining all the demonstrations for uh, the planet and that's when I think I realized by learning more where the real impacts were and what was really sustainable or not. And that's when I started to question the clients we had and uh, how we could make our business more sustainable. And eventually I realized, in my opinion, that it could not really be uh, compatible. What we were doing, working for these huge companies, helping them sell more and more, whether it's luxury companies or banks. And I thought that I had uh, to quit my job at some point. So I think the biggest part of the journey is to learn uh, from scientists and IPCC and realizing where the real impacts are and uh, especially on, in other parts of the world where we don't see the consequences of our actions in Europe, I think was the real uh, eye-opening moment for me. And that's when uh, it switched. And I still have a lot of... Uh, of uh, The journey is not over. <laughs> There's still a lot, uh, a lot to come, a lot to do. But that's, that, that was a tipping point for me, the IPCC reports. And you came already a long way on the road. Yeah, and in a short time, actually eventually mm -hmm. that gives me hope <laughs> when i see myself five years ago i'm like oh my god <laughs> and tom what about you so yeah I've, I've always loved nature and i've always been interested in the environment and protecting the planet as well from a quite a young age but i thought like the only way i could make an impact in my day-to-day -day job as a designer at a studio was to just work with charities or ngos that focus on protecting the rainforests or water reserves or, and it was only really a few years ago when I read about the actual direct impact of the digital products and services that I was designing, that my kind of whole outlook on design changed. It's like Anne said as well, you start questioning the idea of infinite digital growth and technology, and it starts kind of becoming very apparent the glaring gaps in our design processes, and that we weren't but needed to start considering finite resources such as energy, minerals and water, and really kind of bake that into how we start designing digital products and services. So yeah, it kind of flipped a switch in me and really just changed kind of how I looked at everything I was designing. It's funny, this switch being flipped is a 
very common story that I hear a lot on this podcast. Like at some point you hear something, you realize something, and you just want to align the way you do your job with what you truly believe matters. But very, very interesting. Thanks both of you for, for sharing this personal journey. And Tom, Green.io is about sharing hands-on experience on how to make digital technologies more sustainable, as you stated just before. I believe you were highly involved in the design of the Branch magazine published by the CAT community, climate action tech community, actually. This online magazine was designed to be sustainable from the very first bite. Could you tell us a bit more about it? Sure. So, yeah, as you say, I'm a member of a Slack group for tech workers interested in climate action called Climate Action Tech or CAT for short. And I saw a post one day from Chris Adams and Michelle Thorne, both of whom are fantastic and I've admired since I started getting into this topic. And they were looking for a designer for a new magazine about a sustainable and just internet for all. So I kind of replied to the Slack thread and sent some of my work and we just started kind of working together on the design of the kind of magazine site. As you say, it's kind of like unusual for a project to start thinking about sustainability from the off. You know, it's not normally how you know you kind of approach a design project, but it's really how I wanted to start approaching all of my design projects. And we wanted the design of the magazines kind of reflect the principles of a more sustainable and just internet, and also all the amazing articles that were written for it, because like some of the content on the magazine is really amazing, and we really wanted the kind of site to reflect that. So I worked closely with Michelle and Chris and the rest of the team, and we started brainstorming how we could do it. The idea behind the design was to try and reflect the physical infrastructure of the internet, as well as trying to kind of reduce the energy use of the site at the same time. So I'd previously done some work on creating the concept of network responsive design. So the idea that apps can show different designs depending on your network connection. So, for example, showing heavier, more energy intensive experiences when you're on Wi-Fi, but when you're on a mobile network like 4G or 5G, the experience of the design is a lot lighter. This is because data sent over mobile networks is much more energy intensive than over Wi-Fi or wired. And also mobile traffic is just growing and becoming the most common way we kind of access the Internet. Um, so just like how you access the Internet matters, it also matters where you access it from. So for Branch, we came up with the idea of implementing something that we termed demand responsive design. So using an API from electricity map, we could tell what the carbon intensity of the grid was in a user's location. And then we could then serve different designs depending on how many fossil fuels were on the grid in their location. So we had a few different design states in the magazine. The first was if someone was accessing it on a lower carbon intensity grid. So there's a lot of renewables on the grid. Um, and in this scenario, we show the user the full magazine experience with all images and videos loading. And it's just, you know, everything, you know, the site as we wanted it to be. But if the grid is like medium carbon intensity and there's more fossil fuels on the grid, we show a more stripped back version of the magazine with dithered low resolution images, which is quite popular in the kind of design of more sustainable websites. And then if the grid is has a lot of fossil fuels on it at the time it's being accessed, then we um, just strip out all the images and videos and use alt text instead. And we kind of crafted the alt text to be kind of really nice and descriptive. So you try to kind of you know, create an image of what's being shown without having to show it, which is also great for accessibility. And then the user can kind of choose whether to like download the images on, ind on individual articles if they want to, but they're not automatically loaded. And another state that we thought was kind of important to reflect was 
if the API was down or, you know, if things weren't working, we'd, you know, just say, you know, we haven't actually got the information of what the grid is at the moment. Because actually, I think it's important to show sometimes that this technology doesn't actually always work. So, yeah, we had four different design states that tried to kind of um, reflect the physical infrastructure of the internet. And which kind of feedback did you get from the users? Uh, we got some really great feedback, actually. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of people really loved it. I think we got some feedback initially when we first launched it that actually it was people wanted to be able to flip between the different views. So initially it was just the magazine was displayed on, you know, whatever, if it was low carbon, it'd be the full experience. But sometimes people wanted to kind of experience what it would be like if it was a high carbon intensity grid and see what the site would look like. So we kind of, um, for the next issue, implemented a switch so you can flick through it. And actually that made the experience much better as well. But yeah, it's it went down really well, but I think it also went down really well because the, some of the content was really, really good. It helps. <laughs> it definitely helps. Yeah. And Anne, how much does this project resonate with some of yours? Did you experience many projects like this, like sustainable from the very first bite? We did. Uh, I always say we because I, I work a lot with my uh, partner in crime, uh, Aurélie Baton, <laughs> uh, with whom I, I wrote the, the designer ethic uh, guide. On the other hand, it's a lot of debate among us. Uh, the work that Brunch uh, did, or like the things you can see on Organic Basics website or on the Low Tech Lab website as well, to choose to show images or not, so to adapt to the consumption of uh, electricity. Uh, because I know that the people behind the Brunch magazine, like Tom, they are very aware of how it works and they are great designers with the uh, sustainability in mind. And we think it's uh, great tools to raise awareness of people of indeed, as you say, Tom, uh, to realize that, uh, for example, when you're on a mobile phone, it's going to consume more energy than uh, if you're with a Wi-Fi connection or depending on how the electricity is produced where you live at the moment. On the other hand, I think uh, we chose not to implement this kind of features on, our, on the website we've been working on because we are a bit afraid of the rebound effect. Uh, I think people should understand, and I'm not sure it's always the case, that with Brunch Magazine, the highest, like the, the thought uh, first frugal, so that like the high end version is already frugal. And then that shows like, what can we remove in the other versions? But many people might think like, okay, so I put everything I want in the, in the high version, because if it's renewable energy, then I can consume more energy and maybe like non required one not not necessary one and that's uh, the rebounds effect we might be afraid of uh, that people think that oh if the energy is greener then i can consume more and actually we need either way whether it's renewable or not we really need to decrease our consumption of uh, overall energy however it is produced so i think these kind of uh, features are great because they are thought provoking they are great to raise awareness I wouldn't say it's something to do everywhere. I think it should, uh, yeah, it's great when it's in the right hands and when it's brought the right way, like uh, like Tom and, and the others did with French Magazine. But I think it's um, it can be a bit touchy. And I think with Aurélie, we usually think like, it's like with accessibility options, like those add-ons that you could put on your website, like Facility. It's like, why don't you just make it accessible in the first place? Like, why do you need a, a plugin to make it accessible as an option? Like, if it's accessible, it's great for everyone. Just make it accessible in the first place. And so with the eco design, usually I think it like this. I'm like, let's just do everything sustainable by design. 
and then limit ourselves to what's really necessary, whatever the the way the electricity is produced. And uh, so we don't use this kind of options. But again, I think they can be really relevant and uh, and interesting, especially for a media website like Branch, who, whose goal is to raise awareness. So I think it's uh, it was relevant in that context. Mm, fair point. And Tom, this feature, did you manage to deploy it somewhere else, this demand responsive design or even network responsive design? Yeah, good question. Um, to my knowledge, we haven't managed to deploy it anywhere else yet. But the plan was, when we get the time, to try and open source it um, so that it can be used by other people. Um, and I would love to do that with network responsive design as well, which I guess is obviously a bit more applicable to kind of mobile apps. So yeah, I think the plan was definitely to kind of write a, a how-to post of kind of how to implement it so people can use it if they want. But I totally get um, Anne's point, which is very good about like, obviously this was about raising awareness, but the overall aim is probably to reduce energy consumption. And that's I guess that starts with kind of awareness, but I, yeah, I do agree. Fair point. Let's go back to Anne, because you mentioned uh, your partner in crime, Aurélie, and we <laughs> plan to 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 speak obviously about the guide to digital eco-design that you released in early 2021. In May this year, you released a new version with significant updates and actually I have three questions. Yes, it's a lot of work being a guest in the <laughs> podcast. So question number one, is it available in English? Question number two, why did you create such a document? And question number three, your chapter number two. Yes, I read it. Your chapter <laughs> number two is all about assessing measures. So what impact did this guide had on the designer community? Um, so let's answer to the question in the right order. First, uh, the, the guide was available in English. So the first release was actually translated and implemented in English. Uh, the second release, we haven't done that work yet. So I'm sorry for our... English readers, but um, and the second version is twice as long as the first, but still the first one is like a 45 page long PDF equivalent. So you still have a lot of content available in English and uh, we will um, translate it in English, the second, we will translate the second uh, version in English as well. Coming up. <laughs> Why okay. did we? We'll make some noise about it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then the reason why we created such a document, the first reason was actually for ourselves because <laughs> Aurélie and I, um, we both had read a few books and documents on the sustainable web design in, back in 2019 and 20. And so we started to have our own um, guidelines, both of us, in our own uh, computer. And so we thought maybe we should put them in common. And then we thought maybe we should share them online because probably all the people are doing the same in their corner. And so if everybody put their guidelines together, then we have already something great to start with. And so we wanted to write an article and thought that the Association uh, Ethic Designer Ethic, Ethical Designers would be a great place uh, to uh, publish it. And they agreed. And then the article became a whole guide. We had so much to say. <laughs> there was a, there already was so much information available that the, the guide became uh, quite long. And uh, the reason we felt the need to write it was that most of the content regarding sustainable um, web and uh, app design was mainly for developers. It was very technical. Um, sometimes it had implications and consequences regarding the design, but you really need to be aware of what it meant and to read between the lines to understand it. So our goal was to make it more understandable, 
and to show to designers that most of the leverage we can make regarding uh, the environmental impact is actually in the design phase, so that the, at the early stages of the project. That is what was missing on the web at, the, at that time, having this designer point of view. And I think our last differentiator was to make it very uh, easy to read with a lot of examples. A lot of the French content available at that time was more thorough maybe, but again, really hard to understand what it meant. And so we, we show like good examples, bad examples. We try and we also like share the guidelines in the order of the stages of a project, because sometimes it's just uh, classified by, by job or by um, technical solution that we try to, to uh, really like sort them out from understanding the client's problem to communicate about your project and to make it more easy to use for designers. And not only designers, but also other users who might be interested. Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> and so regarding the assessment and measures, we don't have many measures because we didn't look for them. <laughs> but we know that we have around 3,000 people visiting the website each month, uh, which doubled between the two releases. So we know that a lot of people come to us towards the association, thanks to the guide. We know that a lot of uh, companies and organizations share it with their colleagues, share it among the teams. And a lot of people come to us afterwards for advice or for trainings to uh, know furthermore uh, how to implement that in their job. So we know it had an impact uh, and that's how far I can go with the, with the figures. <laughs> well, that, that's pretty impressive. Congratulations to, to both of you. Tom, did you read this guide? Yeah, of course. Um, I think it's great. Um, when I kind of talk with designers or give a talk somewhere, often I get asked for something exactly like this because, like I said, a lot of the guides are more technical, um, maybe some of them aren't so practical, uh, maybe they're kind of geared more towards developers. But people are really looking for kind of practical guides and things with examples and things that are kind of usable in a day-to-day and I think this is great for this. So I'm definitely going to be directing people to it, especially when it's kind of translated fully in English as well, because this is exactly the sort of thing that designers I speak to are looking for. Okay, that's that's very good news. Yeah, great. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> so we have more norms, more guides, but do we really make progress in sustainable design? Here is a, a fun fact. The title of Chapter four of the guide to digital eco-design is start with mobile first design. As a reminder, this guide was released in 2021. And in 2016, Tim Freak wrote exactly the same thing in the chapter five of his designing for sustainability book, be mobile first and adopt progressive enhancement. What do you think about this? Has sustainability in our digital sector improved these last years? Tom, you became a designer 14 years ago, so you can shoot first. <laughs> um, I think 100% it has improved in the last few years. It's become more of a conversation now than it was before. But I think that was quite a low starting point. So maybe there's still a bit of a way to go in awareness. And I think it differs from country to country. So perhaps France is maybe more kind of progressive in the conversations around this than perhaps the UK is. But as you say, I've been designing for a while. And I remember being told off by developers for supplying designs or assets that were too heavy. Um, but now like storage, memory, CPU and bandwidth are all in abundance and cheap. So optimization has kind of gone out the window. 
but I feel the awareness is is creeping in. Um, in terms of mobile, I, I agree it's a good place to start. And through the sustainability lens, it's also a great place to start, like I said earlier, you know, reducing energy use on mobile um, because it's more energy intensive than Wi-Fi. So, yeah, I think um, I think that is a good place to start. And it's interesting to kind of have the conversations with designers around the awareness. There it is definitely a bit more of a conversation, but I think there's a there's a long way to go, especially in um some of the kind of larger companies that have more scale and reach as well. Oh, that's interesting because you mentioned the level of awareness about sustainable UX among designer, and that's indeed an issue which I'd love to have your opinion on, both of you. And fun fact again, last week I read two things which send two very opposite signals. Firstly, an article in Forbes, which the title was Why Web Designers Need to Think About Sustainable Web Design. Okay, great. Secondly, a post from uh, Sultan Jonas, who is uh, one of the founder of uh, the Sustainable UX community. So big kudos to him. And in uh, the Slack workspace, he questioned the low level of awareness he still experiences when he gives talks. And I'm quoting him here. Whenever I give a talk about sustainable UX before the talk, I often have the feeling that everybody in the room already must know what I'm about to say. Reality is the total opposite. Every time people approach me, say thank you and say that they haven't thought about all of this until now. So my questions would be the following ones. Did sustainable UX become mainstream or is it just greenwashing? How aware are designers around the globe about sustainability? I definitely, yeah, I definitely had that feeling. Um, giving a talk about sustainable design and being surprised about um, how few people were kind of aware of a lot of the issues in that area. So for sure. Um, I don't think it's become mainstream um, yet. And I think it's got a long way to go perhaps before it does. Greenwashing is a tricky one. There's always a risk of that happening anywhere. Um, and it's obviously very prevalent in a lot of kind of uh, industries at the moment. I do think people are becoming a bit wiser to it now. Maybe they're not taking companies on face value. You know, there's so many kind of different terms for carbon neutral, carbon zero, carbon negative. And I don't know, my hope is that the tactic of greenwashing is kind of short term. And ultimately, the kind of companies that are actually not trying to make a change will kind of suffer the effects of not doing so, because I think people are going to be looking for you know real progressive action and companies that actually take things seriously rather than just sticking buzzwords and green labels on top of things. So yeah, that's um, that's kind of the direction I think it is going. But I do think we've got a long way to go before it's uh, before it's mainstream. And Anne, what's your opinion on it? I agree as well. There's a great uh, disparage between the level of knowledge from one person to another regarding a sustainable web. But sometimes when it's a specific conference on that topic, people who come are people who are already interested and aware. And sometimes I have the opposite uh, reaction. People come to me like, oh, it was nice, but it was, I wanted to dig deeper. Like I already knew most of it. So fortunately, they are, both exist. So when I try to, when I give a conference, I try to give a very specific advice and also like more general uh, uh, overview uh, so that anybody can uh, get something away from it. Regarding the this level of awareness, I think a lot of designers are stuck in agile sprints, uh, as I can uh, notice. And so they are frustrated because I think sometimes agility doesn't let uh, designers take a step back, train themselves, dig deeper, uh, even do some user research. A lot of UX designers are frustrated because they tend to do a lot of UI, 
but not so much UX um, as far as I could uh, exchange with uh, them from a lot of different companies. So even in the companies, sometimes we go to training them on this specific topic. They're like, it's great, but when are we going to be able to just sit down and think more thoroughly on our design language to make it more sustainable. So they, they have a lot of pressure to release very often. And as Tom said, because the bandwidth is so big nowadays, they don't think so much uh, about optimization. The, the final thing I wanted to say regarding greenwashing was that indeed, uh, more and more companies are aware of that and uh, tend to, to pay attention not to, to get any backfire on their communication. However, I think that a lot of them do greenwashing without meaning to because they don't know where the real impacts are. So when we talk about uh, sustainable uh, web design, they mainly focus on the energy consumption or worse, the electricity consumption, which is not an environmental indicator because depending on how the electricity is produced, it can be very uh, variable. So they don't only look at the at how much energy is consumed while navigating the website. And that's not how uh, it should be uh, considered because 75% of the impacts of the digital industry is actually in the hardware that's required to run uh, these websites and apps. So the main goal of eco-design is to make uh, the hardware last longer. So we don't need to... Um, to change so often our smartphones, especially, uh, and computers, because uh, they tend to, to be too slow to, uh, to charge anything and to download a new app. So um, I think a lot of companies really focus only on that, and then they don't realize, they don't question uh, their hosting supplier, or they don't question how often they might change their computers. Then it becomes greenwashing. If they start to communicate on, this, on the, the energy used to run the website only, without considering the whole uh, digital strategy, then it's greenwashing and I don't realize that. So that's sometimes, yeah, greenwashing is, uh, is not always on purpose. <laughs> yeah, it's because they didn't do a digital collage and otherwise they would have read the very same card and the one that you've described regarding the three quarter of the environmental footprint being bared by a hardware rather than electricity consumption, as you said, but that's um, <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But yeah, still a long, still a long way to go. But I'd like to bounce back on something you mentioned regarding both of you, the bandwidth. And it connects me with the norms and guides that we now have in the world of web design. So we have W3C standards, like obviously the accessibility guide, the de facto standard for web performance with Google Lighthouse, old fashioned, but still relevant security standards. And now we have also to take sustainability into consideration. So my point is, while designers are constrained a lot in very short time sprints, and they even struggle to do UX, as you rightfully mentioned, that's a complaint that I heard a lot. Has it become too complicated for designers to deal with all those imperatives? Yeah, I don't think it's become too complicated. I think we need to start embedding it within education for designers, which is why I think you know, lecturing and working with students is important. I think that's kind of where it needs to start. But even designers now, it's not too much to think about at all. We just, we need to create the time within the process to be able to think about it. And we need to repurpose our current design processes and move them away from being focused on optimizing for business and growth objectives, move them away from being all about getting more clicks, more attention, more conversions. And we just need to allow designers to kind of reflect and consider the environment and make it an integral part of 
how we think about digital products and services because at the moment it's in it isn't in our processes at all and i think that i think that's what the problem is i don't think it's too much to put them in there either and accessibility should be an integral part of that as well the other day i was giving a training on eco design to in a company and one guy came to me at the end he was maybe 40 or 45 and he told me you know when i hear about the guidelines of eco design i just i just it just seems to me that i'm hearing my developer classes from 15 years ago on how to optimize um, images and the code and and as tom said earlier it before like before the bandwidth was so big we we could uh, we really needed to make all these optimizations and nowadays we don't even uh, try to most of the times so for me it's not complicated in the sense that it's just going back to the basics a lot of the of the advice given is just like going to the real need of the user serving it and no more and it's just making good ux and um and making quality um, web performance websites. And I think UX got uh, really out of its real purpose by serving, as um, Tom said, uh, more um, attention purposes and clicks and conversion rates, and sometimes at the expense of a worse experience for the user, because we, ha we are a bit uh, harassed uh, when we navigate websites. So eventually, it's, it is a constraint, but constraints can make us more creative. And it creates also a virtual circle because a lot of the guidelines uh, for eco design are the same ones as with accessibility, the respect of the attention of the users, the respect of its uh, privacy, and also the, the good uh, guidelines for performance. And then SEO, and actually a lot of those recommendations go towards the same direction, eventually meaning that it's not so complicated because it's not like adding up. It's a group of guidelines which are really consistent uh, between all of them, Yeah, which can also enhance creativity. Is it what you referred as a virtuous cycle concept? Somehow I, I heard you talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Ago. Because if you make a if you make a website more sustainable, if I can say so, then it's more accessible. And if it's more accessible, then it's more performance. Because, uh, for example, Google will uh, enhance uh, more accessible websites in his uh, in its SEO. And it will uh, also be more respectful of people's attention. A great example of that is autoplay uh, videos. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for the attention of the user. It can be bad for the experience. It's bad for accessibility. It's bad for SEO because it's going to make it very heavy, heavy and not accessible. So if you remove an autoplay video, you're going to really increase the performance in all those fields. That's very interesting because in Green IO, we focus almost solely on the environmental impact of digital technologies and we keep our focus on it, but it doesn't mean that the other aspects are not important also. And sustainability obviously covers much more with uh, people and profit coming with planet. Like if we mention the three P, for instance, there is a lot of discussion about ethics, which you uh, rightfully mentioned. I could mention Mike Montero's work in the US or Amélie Boucher works uh, in France. I wanted to ask you, both of you, if you had to pick one message beyond being green when it comes to sustainable UX, what would it be? I think for me, it would 
be to make sure that the internet is a public resource. It needs to be open and accessible to everyone all over the world. I think one of the main things we need to talk about more or focus on is somehow moving it away from the kind of privatization of this infrastructure and it kind of being held in the hands of three or four giant corporations, because I think that's a lot of the challenges we face is not having, you know, we don't have access to a lot of the data that's needed on energy use and a lot of the infrastructure. So I think aside from the sustainability, it's deeply embedded within it, but there's big kind of questions around accessibility for everyone and also the kind of growing privatization of the infrastructure that we pretty much all rely on. For me, I would say, um, I like to quote uh, Satish Kumar, who's uh, an Indian uh, activist regarding environment and the social issues. He said something, and I think I really agree, that you cannot take care of the planet without taking care of the people. Like if our goal is to make the world more sustainable, we're going to need to take everyone on board and to think about development and prosperity. And it's not going to, like many people cannot afford to be as uh, environmentally uh, responsible than others. So we need to to take everyone on board. And so it means making accessible websites, of course, but also it means to think about all the people working in the mines, extracting all the resources we need to run our computers and uh, and networks. And the world doesn't have an, an endless uh, amount of supplies and resources, so we should use them wisely because it's going to be more and more complicated and expensive to take them out of the earth and to transform them into digital uh, devices. So that would be, maybe I'm, I'm cheating a bit, that would be my two points. <laughs> we need to take care of the people and we need to, to use more wisely the resources we have at hand. And if we take these two pieces of advice that you shared, both using more wisely a very limited stock of uh, resources and maintaining the internet as an open system, if you take that into consideration, did you find some time in situation where you had to question the why, the, the very purpose of uh, your client, for instance. And my, my, my question is, did you find yourself in situations where making design more sustainable was not enough, no matter how reduced and offset the scope three of your client's operation were and how beautiful the communication is? At some point, does the why challenge you as well? I have a, a great... Uh privilege of being able to choose my clients. So I only work for projects in which I believe in, for which I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, meaning and, and I think it's, a, it's relevant for them to, to use resources because of their purpose. However, sometimes I still feel that it can uh, clash, especially within companies I give trainings in. So then it, they have the choice to implement or not. The guidelines I give, usually when it clashes, it's with the business model, especially when it's uh, publicity oriented. So like with the social media, usually people, when I give them all the guidelines, they're like, yeah, but then what about like Facebook or Instagram? Like that's, that's the business model here or even on splash.com. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's my point. Like <laughs> the, the more sustainable you want, to, you want to become, the more you need to rethink your business model. Like it can get really deep. And so with uh, the publicity-based business models and the e-commerce, which is a lot about uh, increasing the average uh, basket of a client and, uh, and the amount of uh, products uh, he purchases, then it's, it usually clashes with the, with the guidelines. And I think it doesn't clash if you look long-term. 
But the, the issue is that most people in these companies have short-term goals and objectives. And so they need like, it's Christmas, they need to sell that much and to make that percentage of growth. And it clashes with the maybe the long-term goals of the company regarding sustainability and brand image. Because sometimes they're going to harass the clients with a lot of publicity. And uh, whereas if the website was really comfortable and uh, maybe clients would come more, but that's long-term strategy compared to short-term strategy. And that's when it clashes the most uh, from what I can uh, observe. Now, is that the very definition of sustainability? And what about you, Tom? Did you experience uh, such kind of a clash? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's always going to be clashes and contradictions. And I guess part of working for a studio when you're working with clients is a, is a way of trying to kind of balance that. I agree with what Anne said. So a lot of it is it's short-term thinking over long-term. Um, and that is a kind of large part of the problem. Yeah, it's impossible not to ask yourself questions when seeing some of the kind of startups and projects that kind of go on in the in the kind of tech space. You know, does the world need a internet-connected salt shaker? And, you know, why are so many talented designers working on a tool to serve more digital ads? But I think, I don't know, I feel like the way you're going to kind of make most impact is by working with big clients and big companies and trying to kind of, you know, be part of the solution, you know, rather than standing on the kind of precipice looking in. Um, but yeah, it's always going to be a bit of a balance and a bit of a contradiction. Yes, indeed. And being mindful of time, I'd like to ask you the two final questions to both of you, obviously. The first one being, what makes you optimistic today regarding our past toward a greener digital world? Um, what makes me optimistic might be the realization that the European governments are starting to tackle the issue, whether it's at the European Union level or the French government, which is not the most uh, environmental friendly government uh, we can have. But even this government, it's it, passed a law last year regarding the reduction of um, the environmental uh, footprint of the digital uh, business uh, sector. So if the government uh, sets the trend, whether it's in its administration, as it does already, or whether it's uh, by passing laws, I think things can change uh, on a wider level than uh, what it had until now, where only individuals acted on this topic. So that makes me hopeful. And especially because now the, the subject is brought towards the, the European Union and the European Union did some great things regarding the production of, of data and privacy of the users. So I think it can really do interesting things regarding uh, sustainability of the digital sector. I think there's loads of good reasons to be optimistic about the path to designing more sustainable digital products and services. Um, the good news is there's so much low-hanging fruit, so much wasteful redundancy built into our internet infrastructure. And we can make a massive difference by simply trying, because at the moment, we're not even doing that. We're not trying. And I feel like we can make huge gains by doing that. And also, as I said before, if we can educate younger designers about the issues, then we'll really start to see the kind of awareness increase and influence the kind of design of digital products we use every day. And that's the main reason I think I'm optimistic, because whenever I do lectures or workshops with young people, they really care about sustainability. And they really want to make sure that the work they're doing in the future has a positive impact. So I think that's, um, that's one of the main reasons to be optimistic for me. And to help, actually, this young generation, I'd like to ask my final question, which is what would be your recommendations to learn more about sustainable design? I'd recommend anyone interested joins the Climate Action Tech Slack community. 
Um, there's so there's so many amazing people on that channel and working in that space, and I just find so many good articles and conversations happening there. Um, there's separate channels for design and other disciplines, as well as kind of different locations. And it's just a really great place to kind of meet like-minded people working in the same area rather than kind of working or thinking about it in silo. I think it's just much better kind of working with other people. So yeah, I'd, I'd recommend anyone interested joins Really? That. Because I, I've never mentioned this community <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, yeah. <it's> a... <laughs> uh, for me, most of my resources are in French, but um, there's one which is available in English, which I, which I really love. It's the blog of um, Gauthier Roussil. So we can uh, add uh, this, this uh, URL uh, this hyperlink in the description of the podcast, but um, he's a French researcher uh, from a design background, but now he's more of a researcher um, around the, the environmental impacts of the digital industry. He did his PhD in England, so he wrote lots of his papers in English, and they are really accessible, though highly technical, and he has this great overview uh, of the whole um, production chain and where the impacts are. He's a specialist in 5G, in semiconductors, in um, full uh, life cycle analysis. So I think it's great to read uh, his papers to get uh, a better overview on what the rebound effects are or what the impacts uh, on the, the mining industry are. So yeah, very accessible, all free, uh, available online in English. Yes, he's a very strong voice in the digital sustainability field and we need more like him. Thanks a lot for sharing all of this. That's not unknown material that you've shared, but that's always good <laughs> to remember it. <laughs> and that was very insightful feedback that you and, and experiences that you shared. Uh, I really enjoyed the discussion between the two of you. So I would like to thank you again for joining the show. That was really, really great to have you here today. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Gail. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thank you. And for our next episode, we will go to Chicago to meet a legend, someone mentioned several times in the show, Tim Frick. And I'm sure our discussion will bring new perspective to the one we had with Anne and Tom today. And that's it. Thank you for listening to Green IO. Make sure to subscribe to the mailing list to stay up to date on new episodes. If you enjoyed this one, feel free to share it on social media or with any friends or colleagues who could benefit from it. As a non-profit podcast, we rely on you to spread the word. Last but not the least, if you know someone who would make a great guest, please send them my way so that we can make our digital world greener one bite at a time.